Dateline, a campus near you. Read all about it. Press releases, articles, blogs, news feeds, rankings, books, tweets, posts, podcasts. The head spins and swims in admissions, updates, news, spin, lists, commentary, gossip. So much buzz, too much info, so many opinions. I'm here to help. When the beat is loud, I'll turn down the volume. I'm Lee Cuffin, Dartmouth's Dean of Admissions. Welcome to the Admission Beat, the pod for news, conversation, and advice on all things college admissions. Well, everyone from snowy Hanover, New Hampshire. So the Winter Olympics are underway, and eight athletes are representing Dartmouth in Beijing, in alpine and Nordic skiing, biathlon, and women's ice hockey as members of Team USA and Team Canada. And that's really exciting. But it gives us a moment to think about the role of athletics in the college admission process and the idea of athleticism as a type of merit for applicants. So I've invited my colleague, Peter Roby, Dartmouth's interim athletic director to join us on this week's pod. Peter will tangle with Charlotte Albright in the newsroom as she quizzes us about some recent headlines at the intersection of admissions and athletics. And then Peter and I will offer a roundtable primer on athletic recruiting for any of you high school juniors who might be thinking about that very specific type of college search. So lots to cover. Let's get started. So welcome to Admission Beat Newsroom. Hi, Charlotte. How are you this week? I am doing well, thank you. Charlotte and I are joined by our guest, Peter Roby, who is the Interim Director of Athletics at Dartmouth and one of my new besties in the administration. Hi, Peter. It's nice to see you. Thank you, Lee. Great to see you, Charlotte. Great to meet you and work with you today. Um, so we've asked Peter to join us in newsroom as well as roundtable because there's headlines that swirl around all things athletics. We're going to touch on that. But by way of introducing Peter, he's been with us at Dartmouth for the past year, um, but previously had been the director of athletics at Northeastern University in Boston. And for a while was the head men's basketball coach at Harvard. So Peter comes at this both as a coach and as an AD in this division one space. So I'm excited to have you in newsroom and help, help Charlotte um, think about some of the headlines. Charlotte, what are you seeing on the admission beat this week? Wow. A big headline, a big headline, uh, a big headline. Well, you know, somewhere in the last week of January, the Supreme Court announced that it would hear a challenge to the consideration of race in college admissions, um, taking up lawsuits claiming that Harvard and the University of North Carolina discriminate against Asian American applicants. So there it is, that whole idea of race um, as one of the many, many factors that might be involved in making decisions keeps coming up. Uh, surprised, Lee, are you? No, I mean, this has been bubbling its way through the legal system for several years, and it always seemed likely that it would be on the Supreme Court's docket sooner or later. So here we are. And it's not the first time the Supreme Court will uh, rule on this question of the use of race in college admissions. So, you know, there, there were a couple of cases from the University of Michigan in the early 2000s and the University of Texas um more recently and these two are high profile um and it brings it brings the question of race as one factor among many 
back into this conversation about college admissions. So it, it's a big deal. The ruling um, has the potential to upend a policy that's been in place for many years. Um, but the thing I keep saying when people ask me, you know, am I worried? I said, well, you know, you never like to see um, a policy removed. But policies do come and go. It, it doesn't mean the principle of diversity on our campuses is up for debate. It means the way we create a diverse campus needs to be reconsidered um, if the Supreme Court lands in that space. So um, I think the next several months will be important to watch the way the arguments unfold and the way colleges, I assume Dartmouth will be one of them, file amicus briefs with the Supreme Court um, to support the policies at Harvard and Chapel Hill. And, and then we'll wait to see what the ruling is. Yeah, and it would be a big deal. It would be a reversal because uh, the University of Texas won that case. And as we speak now, it is okay uh, for uh, race to be one of many factors in consideration. Um, and so the Heckinger Report is sort of reporting that, you know, some admissions directors are, in their words, freaking out. They're not as calm as you're sounding. <laughs> <laughs> I what would you to, say to them? Yeah, I, I don't, I try not to freak out, you know, just as an operating proposition. I, I, you got to keep a cool head. And like I just said, keep your focus on the principle and the value of a diverse undergraduate community, that's not negotiable. That, that doesn't go away because affirmative action might be outlawed. Um, it just means that the path to the campus we imagine has to be designed in a new way um, with different variables. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, you know, when you say, does it surprise me? In the 2003 ruling um, uh, for the University of Michigan, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor upheld the use of race as one factor among many, but said that she imagined this policy would no longer be necessary in 25 years. So 2003 plus 25 brings us to 2028. So even without this particular lawsuit, you know, the sunset clause in the Gruder and Gratz rulings is nearing. And it doesn't mean it would be activated, but she signaled that within a 25 year window, this could be revisited. So here we are a couple of years earlier than that, but it is not a surprise that this topic has returned to the court's attention. And you know, what's really interesting is uh, assuming they hear it uh, this for this particular session, um, it may be one of the last big rulings that Stephen Breyer is involved in since he's just announced he's uh, retiring uh, next year. And Biden has, of course, announced uh, that he would keep his campaign promise and nominate a Black woman. Mm -hmm. So all this adds layers of complication and interest. Yeah. And that, you know, the Breyer departure probably doesn't change the outcome. Of, of the ultimate decision, but um, I don't think he is one of the variables in terms of how he would vote on this one, but we'll see. Peter, as you listen to this, you know, you're in athletics, not in admissions, but do you have any reaction to, to this lawsuit as it moves through? 
Well, sure. I mean, as a person of color, I have a, a reaction to it uh, because uh, what I find to be interesting is that for hundreds of years, race was used in excluding people from access. Uh, and now when the country has tried to re um, uh, kind of redo those wrongs, it becomes more of an issue again. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I think context is really important in any of these types of things. And the reason that we got to this point or got to a point where people wanted to use race as one of the factors in considering admission is because for many years, race had been used in the opposite way. Right. And many people were excluded from access to higher education at certain institutions because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity, or in some cases, their gender. Mm -hmm. um, so we just have to make sure that people um, keep that in mind. Context is really important. And uh, if, if, if we're thinking that we're at a point in time in the country's history where that no longer is needed because we're doing so well with it, um, I would beg to differ. And I think most uh, people that are being completely transparent would agree. Yeah. That's really well said. Uh, you can write our amicus brief because I think you, you know put a nice kind of kind of clarity of purpose on on the topic. So Peter Roby, I'm going to ask you a question about athletics uh, with a proviso that I know almost nothing about athletics, as your my family will tell you. Um, I cross country ski occasionally. And when I was in high school, I was on a swimming team. And that's about the extent of my knowledge of college athletics. I can assure you nobody would have recruited me. However, as you know, uh, last June, the Supreme Court, it's been busy, uh, ruled <laughs> unanimously that the uh, NCAA can't limit education related benefits like computers or paid internships that colleges some colleges offer their sports stars, uh, which uh, the AP said was a victory for athletes that could help open the door to further easing in the decades old fight over paying student athletes. And then in September, it would seem anyway, uh, and the Chronicle reported this, that college athletes got one step closer to being recognized as employees when the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel said certain college players are employees and should be protected by labor laws. So this is all Greek to me. Um, maybe you can help me out, understand how important this is. Well, it has a chance to be very important uh, because it could change the, uh, the whole the dynamic of, of uh, the relationship between a college and its athletes or its uh, students that participate in athletics from being an amateur kind of pursuit with benefits that accrue as a result of their participation and now uh, would uh, transition to a situation where it would actually be a more of a pay for play so that um, um, colleges could decide how much they think you're worth based on your contributions to that particular team. Uh, so, you know, for me, as someone who is a product of an Ivy League education at Dartmouth College and then coached in the league uh, for many years and other um, very highly selective colleges and universities, I don't, don't agree and subscribe to the notion that our student athletes should be employees because that completely changes the dynamic. Um, they're supposed to be pursuing their education. Uh, they're supposed to be doing it as a co-curricular activity. Um, and so we're losing, we're losing the focus on what this whole pursuit was supposed to be about. 
-hmm. was supposed to be about helping people gain access to higher education to prepare themselves for a, a, a career and a life of, um, of achievement and fulfillment because of what they learned and how they developed when they were in college. And um, the more we keep talking about uh, compensation, the more the conversation slips from that noble pursuit of development and education to one about compensation. And we'd be naive if we don't talk about the fact that part of the reason we've gotten here is because there is a, a fairly small percentage of the over 1,100 institutions that make up the NCAA and divisions one, two, and three who have generated enough revenue that they compensate their coaches as if they were professional coaches. So you have coaches in some of the major conferences in the country that are making upwards of $10 million a year. Wow. Plus bonuses. Um, while people suggest that their, their student athletes are not getting anything, quote unquote. Uh, so what that tells you is that they're minimizing the, the value of an education because they're equ equating getting something with monetary compensation because their coaches are being compensated so well. Uh, and uh, it's, it's an optic that's hard for the folks at those particular schools uh, to justify. So that, that's kind of the issue in a nutshell. And um, if, if student athletes become compensated for pay to play, they become employees and they're subject to withholding taxes and uh, uh, all the things that go with being an employee. Uh, so I guess they could collectively bargain, uh, but they also could be fired if they don't perform at a certain level. So they have, they get taxed on their income. Uh, they're no longer considered amateurs. And so if I recruit you and you don't perform on Monday, I could fire you in essence, because it's no longer about you being a student athlete. It's now about you being an employee. And so that dynamic has a chance to really not be in the favor of the student. And so we have to be thoughtful about all of those uh, unintended consequences. So Peter, this is not an, a headline I've seen this week, like Charlotte, you know, kind of trolls the internet and comes to me with like, look what I just found. Um, <laughs> but there is an ongoing story um, that started in the fall of 2019 called Varsity Blues, where there is a scandal involving parents and coaches. There, the conspiracy was parents with, with some coaches pretending that the students were recruited athletes when they were not and it's gone to court and some some uh, parents have have pled guilty and, and gotten fines others have been found guilty and i'm wondering you know as an ad and as a former coach how you look at this i mean do you think there's a, a permanent stain on college athletics and admissions because I, I continue to get questions about it from the admission side about you know, is this all on the up and up? And I'm quick to point out that, you know, whatever happened didn't happen under the umbrella of admissions. It happened kind of nearby, but not, not in my shop. But what, what's your sense of where we are um, on that scandal and, and the kind of the impact it might be having two years later? Yeah, I, I do think that um, there's certainly a reputational um, uh, pot price that you pay as an, as an industry, whenever you have a controversy that gets this much attention, even though 
when those of us that know anything about how this all works could tell you that um, based on the number of uh, uh, incidences that have been raised, uh, given the number of, of these kinds of admissions, transactions, if you will, about kids being recruited out of high school or junior college, going to a four-year institution and, and, and being admitted, the number is so minuscule compared to the overall volume of these types of things that happen that it's, it's not fair to paint the entire industry with that broad brush yeah, uh, reputationally, yeah. but it, it is what it is. And the, the NCAA is facing a similar type of broad-based industry reputational uh, attack because of the transgressions or the, um, uh, the ex extreme uh, issues at some uh, small percentage of the schools within the NCAA. And this is another example of that. So there is a reputational impact that will wane over time, but just like what happened when we had the, the terrible issues that uh, were uncovered at Penn State with minors on campus being, um, uh, being abused by people that were uh, associated with the college and in this case, associated with the athletic department, everybody, any, everybody then took a, a really um, close lens to their policies and procedures around, um, around um, uh, minors on campus. And so everybody's policies are now reflective of that. Can't be alone with minors. They have to be accompanied. Background checks for anybody that's taking minors on campus. So we benefited from, from the, the unfortunate set of circumstances that Penn State was involved in. Uh, I think this is going to be another one of those things. It's going to be a, a chance for everybody to, to level set what their policies and procedures are when it comes to admissions. I know within uh, the Dartmouth Athletics uh, Department, you've got sport administrators who are in touch with our coaches and our liaisons with admission who are validating and confirming by a videotape, transcript, um, uh, information on the web, um, newspaper articles, that this person is a real person mm -hmm. that is being recruited um, for valid athletic and uh, academic uh, credentials. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that have probably ratcheted up over the years, because I think Varsity Blues, to me, uh, is a, an example of, of laziness on the part of those institutions or a laissez-faire attitude where they just gave athletics a certain number of positions and didn't bother to be um, uh, thorough. Mm -hmm about credentials and um, confirming that these people were really, you know, athletes of the first order uh, and abuses were, uh, you know, were experienced. And, and I think now the industry is gonna be much um, more inclined to uh, trust but verify as Ronald Reagan used to say. <laughs> <laughs> you just dated yourself. Yeah, but I sure. think it's sort of an interesting example though of out of crisis comes some positive forward momentum and i think that's you know that's right. important to remember so just to end end newsroom on a positive upbeat note so i was noticing as the olympics kicked off that there are eight dartmouth athletes 
competing in Beijing right now. Uh, and you smile as I say that. Tell us about that. Like, how, that's exciting. Um, you know, we're such a tiny place. And yet, you know, there are eight athletes on the U.S. and Canadian teams. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a wonderful uh, confirmation of the quality of the types of people that come to Dartmouth and pursue their, their dreams, their hopes and aspirations of all kinds. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I think that's really important for all of us within the Dartmouth community to appreciate that. Um, and to the point that we were talking about earlier about the, uh, the data points that admissions uses when they think about admitting people that um, what people bring to this community is going to be diverse and varied. And it's not just about their academic interests and curiosities and talents, but it's about all the things that make them who they are and make this community so, so vibrant and, um, and valuable. And so you have athletes that have um, gone to Dartmouth, matriculated at Dartmouth and, and have pursued their dreams. And now those dreams are coming true at, at, uh, on the highest, largest stage. And so what a, what a great thing for Dartmouth to, to have people with this much talent and, and this much commitment uh, to represent their country in the Olympic games. And um, just really proud of all of them, proud of the coaches that helped them, uh, proud of uh, uh, the, the college for viewing them the way they did in terms of their admission and how they supported them throughout their journey and how we continue to be proud of them uh, many years after they've, they've graduated. Yeah, no, it's exciting. I, you know, I don't think most people in the country would, would immediately think Dartmouth Olympics. And yet, you know, in the winter games anyway, yeah. we've had a remark, we're like Norway, we've had a remarkably <laughs> consistent uh, degree of representation in the games for yeah. a place of our size. It snows a lot here. Yeah. <laughs> and not only does it snow a lot, which is perfect for the kind of sports we're talking about. Um, it's one of the very few, maybe one of the only ones, Peter, Ivy League schools that owns its own ski slope. Yeah. That, I mean, right there, like no, in between the glasses. Pretty good, <laughs> a pretty good bet. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a fun way to end, end newsroom. So Charlotte, thanks for those headlines. Uh, when we come back, Peter and I will take a step backwards or maybe sideways and think about the path from high school to college athletics. We'll be right back. So this week's roundtable brings us to an important and very specific part of college admission, which is the intersection of athletics and selective admissions. And I wanted to offer a resource to high school students um, and their parents who might be thinking this is a possibility, but they have no idea how to start. And Peter, I, I had this thought um, over the holidays when my dad was in Columbus visiting my stepsister. And she has a son who's gonna be a senior in high school, um, a very talented soccer player at a public high school. And she said, I, he wants to play in college. I have no idea how to start that process. So I thought we need to pot about this. So, you know, with your background, you've been an administrator um, in two places, you've also been a coach. So maybe we should just start at the very fundamental level first and say, like, you're, you're, you're Dana, 
she's got Gabriel trying to figure out how to help him um, meet coaches, tell his story. Like how does someone begin um, this conversation with the college? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, high school coaches can be really helpful and club coaches can be really helpful because many of them have those networks of, of college coaches who they may have been um, involved with in the past with, with former players. Um, and so the first thing to do is have a conversation with your coach to say, I'm interested in potentially um, playing this sport when I get to college. And can you help me by making contact with any of the colleges that I might be interested in attending to let them know that I'm on your team, what you know about me, how you would you know, uh, rate me in terms of a prospect. Um, so that's the first place that um, I would encourage uh, high school students to go, uh, especially because the high school coach is gonna have, or the, uh, the club coach is gonna have a lot of, um, uh, I think a lot of traction and juice with the college coaches because college coaches don't want to um, offend a high school coach by not taking a call, by not responding to an email. Uh, and so I would say that's the first thing. The second thing I would suggest is nowadays, technology is so much more a part of the recruiting process than it was back when I was either going to school uh, or when I was coaching. Well, because we didn't have the internet, we didn't have uh, YouTube and you know all the kinds of technologies that, that kids have now at their disposal. So um, sending coaches a short clip of your highlights uh, or game film or directing them to a website where they can see a bunch of things about you, your profile, your academic background, and, um, and, and maybe some, some highlights of, of you playing um, in high school or on your club team. That's another way uh, to get coaches to take more of an interest uh, in you and know more about you. And given all that's happened the last almost three you know, years now, calendar years with COVID, coaches are much more um, likely and willing to start their recruiting process by having seen some, something of your talents online as they would have before when many people were relying on face-to-face -face and in-person evaluations, either in the summer, at, at, at tournaments, or at your high school games. So that would be a, a way to, to start the process and, uh, and then it can broaden from there. And that's a really interesting, unexpected democratization of kind of athletic recruiting as a byproduct of the pandemic. Um, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, we've seen that in, in, on the admission side too, where when we would travel, you can only go to so many places, but as we've put more of our recruiting on this virtual platform, it is removed geography as a condition of having a, a conversation in person. And all of a sudden the pool has kind of shifted in ways none of us were really, really expecting. So pragmatically, Peter, so great first two steps. When does that happen? Like when should a student and a parent um, and a coach, but really a student and a parent, when do they start doing this? When they're juniors, when they're sophomores, does it depend on the sport? Yeah, it might depend on the sport to some extent, but I would say certainly by the time you're a junior and you might have video from your um, summer between your sophomore and junior year, 
if you feel like it's impressive enough to get people's attention. But certainly uh, at some point in your junior year, you should be reaching out to folks, talking with your, your high school coach or your club coach and asking them to help you um, to strategize about um, the types of places that you're interested in maybe attending and the uh, idea of trying to have a, uh, a chance to participate um, in college athletics. The other thing is if, if, uh, if you have, uh, if you're within a drive of some of these schools, then try to get yourself to those schools and uh, take what they consider to be an unofficial visit. Um, maybe go through the admissions tour with your family. And then if you get the chance, let the coaches know that you're going to be there uh, so that they don't necessarily have to spend any money or do anything in particular, but just greet you. Mm -hmm. And maybe at that point, you put a face with a name, you make a connection, and then you follow up with video or other things that might help them to better appreciate the type of player that you are. Um, and so and that can all happen in 11th grade. Yeah, I think 11th grade is the right time to do that. So much as you know, Lee, changes between the time you're a sophomore and the time you're a senior in high school in terms of what you're interested in studying, the types of places you might wanna to go to school, um, the geography that you might be interested in and the dynamics of the team that you might be interested in joining. Uh, half the team might be gone by when, when you go from being a sophomore to a senior in, in high school and then ultimately get to the campus. And so um, I've always been concerned about the early recruiting mm -hmm. uh, because I think so much changes on the part of the um, student in terms of what they're interested in or them as a person. And, and Peter, when you talk, sorry to interrupt you, but when you talk about early recruiting, what does that mean? That, that, that's a situation where somebody is making a decision of where to attend school when they're a sophomore in high school. Wow. Because they may be good enough that the coaches think they would like you to come there and, and, and participate, but uh, there's so much that's gonna change yeah. between your interests, uh, your development, the dynamics on the team, the coaching staff may not even be the same coaching staff by the time you're ready to uh, uh, attend. I mean, that's almost three years from the time you're a sophomore to the time you matriculate and a lot can change in that situation. And so um, I would just say it's better to do these types of things uh, as you get closer to when you're actually gonna be wanting to go to school there. So you know more about what it is that, you, that you're interested in. Yeah, and I would think developmentally too. I mean, I, I, I see high school students and, you know, 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds don't always look like the same person. My goodness, you know? uh, so much so. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you're, as a coach, you're projecting yeah. what you think that 15-year-old is going to be when they're 17 and a half or 18. Yeah. Well, what happens if it doesn't happen? And now all of a sudden you've made a commitment to a place. Nobody else has recruited you because you've come out and said you're attending X university. And now X university may not be as interested in you as they once were. And so you, you don't want to box yourself in. And so I think parents and students need to resist the temptation to try to lock it in so that they don't have to worry about it anymore, quote unquote, because I think if you're talented enough there's going to be a place for you that you can attend that will allow you to, to pursue your interests um, in terms of college athletics. 
And is senior year too late? Because I, I know a lot of people you know, the, who, from less sophisticated backgrounds, you know, they're in a high school that, you know, this is not the norm or, you know, I just, my own college church, I didn't really start thinking about it until the fall of my senior year. Now that's a long time ago. And I, you know, yeah. it's a kind of a different admission environment, but I know a lot of people who, you know, it's September, they're seniors and I think, oh, now I have to start. So that feels late for athletic recruiting. Yeah, I would say it's it's late uh, in terms of how the industry works now. But I'll tell you this. If you're good enough, it's never too late. Never too late. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, if a young person has a skill, there's going to be a college out there that would love to have you um, participate on their teams. And uh, you, you just have to bet on yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also why it's important that you think about your college uh, your college interest for more than just the athletics so that you're making choices about where you really can see yourself fitting in mm-hmm. with the people, with the geography, with the offerings academically and the extracurriculars. And so that if it doesn't always work out athletically, you still are at the place you really wanted to be. Yeah. And um, one of the things I think that's contributed to the the um, amount of transfers that happen in athletics is because young people are making decisions when they're 15 years old, 16 years old, and then they get someplace and it's not the place they thought they wanted to be. And now they're looking to go elsewhere because they're disenchanted with their experience. Yeah. Now that that's really good advice. And what for, for some parts of the country, some parts of the world, COVID has suspended seasons. You know, so you're a member of the high school class of 23 or 24, perhaps. And, you know, that early part of high school, you know, maybe there was no soccer season or, you know, the, you know baseball didn't happen. Um, what do those athletes do? Well, to the extent that they could try to get to some camps. Camps, like are, summer camps? Yeah, summer camps. Um there are prospect camps that they're called that happen regionally that are put on so that the young people can get exposure to college coaches during the recruiting windows when the coaches are out um, evaluating talent. Um, Many of the colleges nowadays have their own summer camps, uh, uh, sports specific. And so it gives you a chance to visit the campus if you're uh, not far away and can afford that. You get to see how the coaches actually interact with athletes and how they instruct and what their temperaments are and, and uh, how they teach the game, um, what the, what the uh, campus looks like, what's the surrounding area like. Um, some of the people that are um, working the camp as, as coaches could in fact be the athletes on the team. Mm-hmm. So you get a chance to see what kinds of people they are and, whether you could see yourself being friends with them and teammates with them. So going to a particular school and seeing if they have a camp that they offer and, and if it's affordable, trying to get yourself um, into that camp, even if it's a day camp, uh, will give you uh, an opportunity to showcase your skills a little bit, but also get a chance to, uh, to get a feel for the, uh, the institution. 
So I have two questions based on that really interesting insight. So one is just around affordability. So what if you're from a family that doesn't have a resource to pay the fee of a camp or is there financial aid for camps? Or I mean, how does that, and how does a student find these camps? Yeah, so obviously you'd want to be on the on the um, the websites of the individual schools if it's a school specific uh, website uh, or school specific camp. Uh, if it's a more of a prospect camp, you'd probably want to be talking to your high school coach or your club coach to understand what um, the entry requirements are for getting a space in that camp. But you know, you're bringing up a really important issue, which is access. Mm-hmm. And not every family can afford uh, the fees that are associated with a club travel uh, situation or the high level prospect camp or a school's uh, sports specific camp. Uh, And, you know, there's no good answer that I can give uh, folks uh, because if it, if there's a financial burden, it may be difficult for you uh, to to get yourself to those camps. And that's why I say, work with your high school coach to make sure that these coaches know that you're out there so that your season uh, then plays a similar role where the coaches can see video from your games in your season, or they can come to actually watch you play during your season. Um, uh, So that's that's the equalizer. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. some families can afford it, others can't. But if you're a high school athlete, you have seasons worth of information that coaches can get. But they have to know you're out there, and so making contact through your coach uh, is a good way to start. So you also mentioned the temperament of the coach as as one of the opportunities of a camp. And one of the things I've often said to students when I meet them from the admission side, and they're thinking broadly about athletics in colleges. So, you know, when you're a high school student, you know, you usually don't have a choice. Like you're at a certain public high school and, you know, Peter is the coach of the basketball team and you want to play basketball, you play for Peter. In college, you know, you've got you as the applicant have a a decision to make about which coach or coaching staff is going to be the best set of mentors, um, athletic kind of, um, developing your talent right so you know you might say i love dartmouth as a college but the coach in that sport at this college may not be the one you click with i mean is that a fair consideration for a student and parent to think about oh i think so i think absolutely and it, it's uh, it comes back to the uh, the notion that this is about what's best for you as a student as a person as an athlete and you have to own this process as much as you can and um, if you are interested in a particular school, you have to do as much research as you can so you know that this is the right place for you in every way. Um, it's interesting because when I meet or have met with prospective students who are being recruited, I've often asked the coaches to encourage them to come to my office so I can get to know them a little bit, answer questions, and ask questions. And uh, one of the things that I always tell the, the, the student and the, the family is you need to own this process and don't let the process happen to you. Mm-hmm. So you need to be curious. You need to ask questions. 
and you need to hold people accountable for what it is they have done or said. And so um, what, what are you interested in studying? What do you think you're interested in studying? Um, are you interested in having a smaller environment where people are more connected and there's more sense of community? Or do you want a bigger, um, sprawling, urban uh, a campus? Uh, are, you, are you interested in a school that has graduate programs? Or are you interested in more of the liberal arts, um, professional versus liberal arts? Um, you know, all of that should be part of what kids are considering. And the connection to the coaching staff is a crucial one. So if you are able to get to know some of the athletes on the current team, one of the things you should be trying to get at is, hey, what kind of relationship do you have with the coach? Mm -hmm. Do you go in and talk with the coaching staff? Uh, you know, have you talked to them about what you're interested in studying? Uh, has this experience met your expectations from when you were recruited and now that you're a junior, is it going the way you expected it to go in terms of what they said was going to happen and what's actually happened? Um, you know, all that sort of thing. So yeah. you got to take ownership of the process and not let the process take ownership of you. No, that's great advice. And it, when you talk about two-way street, it occurs to me that you know, so a student is, is assessing the coach and saying, is this a mentor? Is this the person I want to, I want to play on this team, but you're also looking at the character of the applicants. And I'm reminded of a, one of the coaches I worked with when I was at Tufts who brought somebody in for a visit and afterwards said to me, I'm dropping him as a, as a recruit. And I said, Oh, why? I thought he was a really talented athlete. And the coach said he had a really toxic personality and it, it wasn't somebody I want to bring into my locker room. And I thought that is so interesting. I don't think the student had any sense that the affect he brought with him to that visit was a turnoff to both the teammates. I mean, the, the people that would have been his potential teammates went to the coach right. and said, no, to please don't recruit him. And then the coach saw it too. And the whole thing shifted. Yeah. I think it's really important that it's a two way process. And it's not just the student trying to decide if they want to go there, but it's also the, the, the staff and the school trying to decide if they want you to be part of that community. So one of the things you hear coaches talk about when they go on the road to evaluate a student athlete uh, in their environment, whether it's at high school or in their club sport uh, team, is they watch the interaction between the athlete and their, their teammates. Mm -hmm. And they watch the interaction between the athlete and their coach and the interaction between the athlete and their parents. And the student athlete doesn't even know that the coach is watching that. So sometimes coaches appear at events and they don't tell the athlete that they're coming because they want to be able to watch them in their natural uh, habitat and see uh, if they are who they say they are. Yeah. Because if you see an athlete who doesn't seem to respond to their coaches, uh, seems to be selfish on the field or on the court with their teammates, uh, is it all about them? Do they get on the officials? Are they disrespectful? Um, do they help kids up after something happens on the field or the court? Uh, are they respectful to their coach after the game? Is there a hug and a kiss or something with their parents? Or are they 
complaining, what's their body language like when they get substituted out of the game. Um, you know, you watch all that because it's telling you a lot about who you are recruiting. Well, and the chemistry of the team you're putting together, um, you know, I, as you're, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about the moment a couple of weeks ago where Antonio Brown had yeah. the tantrum on the sideline at the Tampa Bay game and ripped his Jersey off and left. And I thought, wow, like if you're on the team, or you're one of the coaches or, or whatever his motivation was. It just, that was an episode that didn't feel like it was going to be a happy clubhouse afterwards. Right. And there's, there's been times where you talk to coaches about uh, individual situations on their team. And they say, you know, there were some red flags and we just looked the other way because we thought they were so good that we could, we could uh, work with them yeah, or whatever, you know? And so, um, those are rare, but you know, it happens. Yeah. And so it's also the responsibility of the coaching staff to make good choices uh, as well as the student athletes to make good choices. It's very consistent with the overall admission process. I mean, you're evaluating athleticism as a type of merit in this example, but you're also looking at the whole person. Oh yeah, for sure. And, yeah. I think a lot of people don't really appreciate that, that it's not that you score a lot of goals. It's, you know, are you collaborative? Are you a teammate? Are you a leader? Are you coachable? Yeah. Are you a good yeah. person that people are going to want to be a roommate with or see or sit next to in the dining hall or be in class together or, you know, hang out in the dorms together or, you know, whatever the case may be. It's like we're going to spend a lot of time together as a community. And you hope that the community is respectful and appreciative, empathetic and um and generous. Yeah. Well, it's also, you know, it's easy to win. You know, I like having a championship season is exciting and easy to be happy and all those things when things are going really well. But I, I've been on enough campuses where a team really hits a dry patch. And they, right. you know, when I was at Tufts, the football program went many seasons without a win. And the character of those players was really important because they were rebuilding. It was yeah. hard. Yeah. And the day they finally won was one of the best moments of my on-campus experience. I'll never forget that. But, but leading up to that, it was a lot of tears. And, you know, part of the, the experience of being a college athlete. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, one of the things that our college coach used to say to us at Dartmouth is uh, that um, adversity doesn't um, build character, it reveals it. Yeah, that's right. So Peter, in the primer part of this conversation, let me like ask you a few kind of terms that get bandied about a lot in this space just to help people understand. So let's start with just a really fundamental one. The NCAA is organized by divisions. What's the difference between one, two, and three? Right. So uh, the difference between one, two, and three, at least uh, fundamentally, divisions one and two offer athletic scholarships. Division three does not. Mm -hmm. at any level of division three, whereas at division two, the colleges are allowed to offer athletic scholarships and it differs by college. And the number of um, scholarships is different between division two and division one, depending on the sport. Uh, and so that's one way that differentiates the divisions. Obviously it differentiates by division based on schedule Mm -hmm. and who you play and then what postseason opportunities you would have to pursue 
at, as far as an NCAA tournament. Um, so each of the divisions administer their own championships uh, and their qualifications or their criteria for, for um, uh, qualifying for those NCAA championships differ by division and the size of the tournament um, participation differs by division. So those are some of the ways that they, they differ. So if you're a really high flying high school athlete, why would you lean towards division three? Like what's the, like, how do you know I'm three, I'm one, like what's the internal conversation that happens? Well, I think some of it is, uh, again, comes back to your college coach or your high school coach or your club coach who probably have been very familiar with the level of, of uh, talent that can thrive in any one of those divisions based on history. Um, but it's also about um, um, you making an assessment of what you see when you watch teams play at those divisions, right? Then, then another way of, of being able to do that is <clears throat> Uh, asking yourself, um, how much are you willing to invest <coughs> in the pursuit of your college career? Because the amount of uh, time spent on your athletics might be different at a Division three school mm-hmm. than it is at a Division one school, or the 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 priority that that's put on it, or uh, the balance between academics and athletics may be different depending on the on the division. So all of that uh, may be part of it. How much traveling you do at one division versus another division will also be a part of it. But I think, uh, I think water will find its level. <laughs> and in this case, if you're good enough to play division one, part of the way you'll know is because you're getting recruited by division one schools as opposed to division two and three schools. So that you, that was my next phrase, getting recruited. So my nephew was a, a lacrosse player of some talent was on a club team when he was a senior in high school, junior in high school, he started getting emails and some phone calls. And my sister would say, Jake is getting recruited. And I said, I don't know that he's getting recruited. He's there's been an inquiry, but it was confusing. I mean, it seemed like there was some interest and ultimately there was for one of the colleges, but how does someone like, what does that mean? I'm getting recruited. How do you know someone is wooing you? Well, if they're spending time calling you or asking you for information or actually inviting you to their campus or talking about wanting to come watch you play, that's getting recruited. Okay. So it's not that subtle. Receiving a letter of interest is the first step in trying to figure out whether they want to recruit you or not. So they're interested in getting information about your level of interest, about your academic um, uh, record. Uh, and uh, that starts the process. You usually will fill out a questionnaire that the coaching staff has trying to uh, um, accumulate a bunch of information that tells them, are you someone that they should spend time recruiting because you seem to meet the criteria academically, at least in the range, you have an interest, you're, you're at a level uh, athletically that makes them feel like you're someone that could potentially help their roster. And if they see a, a reciprocal interest on your part, then there's probably going to be more follow-up. Okay. And then eventually you get invited for an official visit. Hmm. What's that? 
So the official visit, what that means is that the school is actually paying for you to come to their campus. Is that D1, 2, and 3, or just one? Yes. All yep. three. Okay. All three. And they're going to make, uh, they're going to either um, pay for the visit or put you up on campus uh, once you, you come. So in Division Three, they may not pay for your visit, but once you get there, they'll make accommodation with meals and maybe have you stay in the dorm with one of their athletes, and then they'll give you the tour and you know, have you meet people academically. They'll meet some, some uh, faculty members and others. Um, it, at our level, Division I, we pay for the visit. Uh, we can pay for up to two other people in your travel party to come, uh, typically your guardians or your, your family members. Uh, 48 hours is the allotted amount of time that you can stay on a campus. So it's typically, um, you know, you could be there two nights, if you will, arrive on a Friday morning, maybe attend class, uh, go eat with some of the athletes, stay over in the dorm or now with COVID, stay in a local hotel. The school will pay for that. You'll go uh, maybe get up on Saturday, watch practice, go to some other events, watch other people play or that team play, go to dinner with other people on a Saturday night have some fun socially Sunday morning, you have a breakfast, you stay over Saturday night, Sunday morning, you have a breakfast and you're gone by midday on Sunday. That's substantial. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. No, it, it's a commitment on the part of the college, but it's also a commitment on the part of the family. Yeah. No, that's a really, I mean, for most applicants that when we have, you know, when we're open, they show up for a tour and an info session, maybe they grab a cookie in the dining hall and then they're off. So, you know, that two day, um, journey through a campus is really, um, that's a lot. So the other word that dances around here is you'll, you'll, you'll hear someone say, I have support. Mm. And um, parents will say, we have support from a coach or the student will say it. Um, what does that mean? So what that means is that um, we have a relationship with the admissions office. We are um, recruiting a certain number of athletes. That the, that the admissions office is comfortable with. And um, by sport, there are a certain number of athletes that can be recruited in any one class. And so there's exchange of information that goes back and forth between the coaching staffs and the admissions office about a particular student's background, mm -hmm. uh, their level of interest, how good they are, how, what, what role they might play on that particular team, but also academically. What school do they come from? How rigorous is their, um, their curriculum uh, academically? Have they distinguished themselves? Uh, how curious are they academically? All of that goes into a conversation with the admissions office so that when admissions is reviewing that particular person's profile, they will ask, is this somebody that you would support because you want them to come and be a part of your program? And so we don't have an unlimited number of those. And so when somebody says you have support from a particular coaching staff, that means we are vouching for this person. We would love to have them on our roster. And so if you admissions deem them admissible in every other way, we would love to have them. So if you're an athlete or a parent, you want to be listening for that pledge of support. Right, right. So if, hey coach, if I apply to school, Will you support my um, my admissions um, 
uh, uh, file? Will, will you tell the admissions office that I'm someone that you'd like to have on your team? So that's the question someone should ask a coach. Yeah. Am I one of the people that you would support with admissions? And what, what if someone dances around that answer? Uh, then you should be trying to get that answer from some other school. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's, you know, but there's it goes a, back to the, back to the conversation about owning the process. Yeah. So don't be afraid to ask the tough questions. Um, we've heard from other schools that I am someone that they are supporting with admissions, but we haven't heard that yet from you coach. So we're just curious as to whether I'm one of those select few that you're supporting with the admissions office. And yeah. they can either answer the question or, or dance around it. If they dance around it, they're telling you something. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a skill set. Like you're developing the art of listening mm. and you're developing the art of being a self-advocate. And I think you're yeah. also learning how to avoid the trap of hearing what you want to hear, um, which may yeah, not and, be what a coach is saying. And don't let people um, hold you for ransom by saying, unless you tell me that you're really coming, I can't support you. Yeah. Uh, because that's not really fair to you. You should have the opportunity to assess how many schools are actually really, really sincerely interested in me and want to support my candidacy. So Peter, is a walk-on still a thing? You know, and by walk-on, I mean someone who is not a recruited athlete they got accepted to the college outside of the athletic recruitment process. And then once enrolled, they show up in the athletic center and say, Hey, I play basketball. And you say, terrific. Let's go dribble. Um, that happens. Yes. Uh, walk-ons are still a, a part of it. The Dartmouth experience for sure. And, you know, when you think about it, um, we're non-scholarship. Mm -hmm. And so uh, rosters fluctuate because students don't feel like they're stuck because they have a scholarship dangling over their head. And if they were to stop participating in the sport, that the scholarship would go away. Well, that doesn't happen in, in, at Dartmouth or in the Ivy League. So um, we, don't, we don't have to worry about that. And so rosters can fluctuate from one year to the next. And, uh, but that's okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of the kids that get recruited here stay here and go four years and, and stay on the roster. Uh, but there's always going to be an opportunity for someone who has the right stuff that's willing to put the work in that can catch the eye of a coach. Um, they're not that many, but in the sport of rowing, for example, it happens a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are other sports where that could happen every now and then as well. So yeah, yeah walk-ons yeah. are still uh, a part of uh, this experience. So Peter, two, two, other questions. Um, one important um, in terms of equity and one kind of philosophic. So the equity one, you'll read in the news sometimes issues around Title IX mm -hmm. and the idea of gender balance on a college campus. Like what does, when we see one of those stories in the news, what does it mean? Like what is the gender dynamic within athletics? Yeah. So um, one of the prongs of, of being in compliance with Title IX is the participation numbers and the percentage of, of male athletes participating on teams versus female athletes and how that compares to the enrollment percentages, male and female of the school. And they're supposed to be very close in terms of the percentage of, of the athletics participation to the uh, enrollment numbers. It's a title nine is a federal expectation. 
And it's a part of the tax code that was created in 1972 that says a person cannot be discriminated against on the basis of gender at institutions or organizations that receive federal funding. Got it. And so because colleges receive federal funding for um, scholarships or uh, loans and that's uh, research, um, then they fall under the, the auspices of that particular tax requirement um, and they can't, they can't discriminate. That's helpful. Um, so my last question is uh, a philosophic one. Um, so you, you know, we've talked, I know that, you know, you emerged out of New Britain, Connecticut, uh, came to <laughs> hard, Dartmouth. Hard hit in New Britain. Hard hit in New Britain and you <laughs> came to Dartmouth. Um, and you played basketball. You were a varsity basketball player at Dartmouth. Um, And then your career has been spent as a coach and an athletic administrator. So this is philosophic and it's personal. Um, Some people ask me why athletics should count in college admissions. Why does athleticism matter? Why is it a, a type of merit that college admissions ought to recognize? Yeah, great question. Um, I guess I put it to you this way. Um, The statistics suggest that of the almost 40 million uh, kids between the ages of five and 18 that play youth sports, only 2% of them will ever play division one athletics. Wow. Only 2%. Only 5% of all the kids that play youth sports will play anything uh, in college. 5%. So you're talking about the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. So why would a school not be interested in having someone come and matriculate at their institution and impact it in a, in a particular way who has that kind of distinction? This is about distinction in all the ways that they contribute to the community. So just like we look at SAT scores or AP scores or uh, entrepreneurship, extracurricular activities, we look for um, people that have distinguished themselves in whatever it is that they've spent most of their um, their time on. Yeah. Because it says something to us about them, that they're willing to put the work in, that they're resilient, that they're tough-minded, that they have this really interesting perspective that would be interesting for others to get to know, that will, they will bring that to the, the conversations in class, in the study groups or whatever. So why is it different when it's athletics? It shouldn't be. Right. There's only 2% of the people in the country who do this that could actually ever do it at this level, division one. And so when you consider the, the requirements academically, to gain admission to Dartmouth College and lay on top of that what it's required to be recruited as a division one athlete that only 2% of the country will ever be able to say they did. That makes them extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And that's why athletics should count. Yeah. It's a, it's a talent, you know, it is um, it, it, for all the reasons you just outlined. And I've said um, recently, someone asked me, about athletics in our student body. And I said, so true or false, Dartmouth is a member of the Ivy League. And the person said, true, of course. And I said, okay, then as an existential truth, 
we are a member of the NCAA Division One as a member of that athletic league. And some members of our student body will be recruited athletes who participate on our varsity teams, period. And uh, it was a faculty member and said, never thought about it that way. I said, no, that's, <laughs> it's part of our identity. It's what we do. And, right. um, but it's a really like, thank you for that really elegant. I mean, I, I teed you up a softball because I knew, <laughs> or I guess since you're a basketball player, I gave you a layup because you, <laughs> I knew you were going to have a really wonderful answer to that question. And I'm, I'm glad to, to end on that. Yeah, so uh, Peter, thanks for joining us on the admission beat. This has been such an interesting and insightful conversation that I think is interesting for people who have children who want to be athlete, college athletes, but also for people like Charlotte, who is listening and smiling as we record this. Um, so uh, thanks, Peter, so it's much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're and, welcome. Um, really honored to be on today. Of course. So that's another edition of the Admissions Beat. Uh, if you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, until next week, this is Lee Coffin and Charlotte Albright. See you later. <laughs>